Good morning, everyone. Please find your way in God's precious word to Mark chapter 15. As we continue our walk through the scriptures, line by line, verse by verse, we are uh, at the end of the Passion Week. Jesus has been arrested. Everyone is scattered. People could not get away from Jesus fast enough. One man left his clothes as he fled. He wanted to get away. Peter follows Jesus from a distance after they arrested him, and when they get to the high priest's house, Peter's in the courtyard, and he ends up denying Christ, cusses like the fig tree did, says he doesn't know Jesus. <coughs> Am I the only one to remember that one? Okay. <laughs> Making sure. <laughs> the one guy who had stayed with Jesus just denied knowing him. Jesus is now alone. He's facing the high priest in the Sanhedrin alone. They, they throw a bunch of lies at him, ask him to respond, but he never does. And as we saw last week, Jesus never responded to the lies or any of the false accusations. He did exactly what the prophet Isaiah said the Messiah would do. Now, this is a familiar text, one that is quoted many times and for good reason. So please turn there to Isaiah 53. Maybe put a marker there, or maybe it's already folded, because this is a text that we go to a lot. Isaiah 53, follow as I read. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Do you remember as we talked last week when Pilate asked Jesus, he said, are you the king of the Jews? And we described the condition that Jesus was in. You know, he, had, he was beaten, he was dirty, he was spit upon. And here he is standing in front of Pilate, looking a mess. He didn't look very much like an earthly king. There was no form of majesty like Isaiah said, no beauty that we should desire him. Not what they expected out of a king. Verse 3, as we continue, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and he esteemed and we esteemed him not. The religious leaders had arrest, arrested Jesus. They brought Christ in front of the Sanhedrin. The high priest was there leading the show. And all of them had one thing in common. All of them despised Jesus. They hated Jesus. They, they, they were full of pride and envy and hatred, and they despised him and did not esteem him as king. They did not see Christ as the king he is because they were blinded by their sin. Surely, verse 4, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed with, for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned away everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Like I said, Christ never gave an answer to the lies. And by not opening his mouth, Christ fulfilled the prophecy that Isaiah had written about the Messiah. Know this, 
not a coincidence. The book of Isaiah was written 700 years before this actual event took place. Why is this important? Very simple. Anyone can claim to be the Messiah. Anyone can make that claim. But only one can prove it. There, there can only be one Messiah, only one Savior. Christ proved who he was time and time again through his actions. He proved who he was by the events that happened to him, through his teachings, and by fulfilling the scripture, he proved who he was. He did this through his love. Now, someone may say, well, you know, Jesus could have gone back and read the Old Testament and put this plan together to make everyone think, uh, make everything happen as the scriptures said, and, and make everyone think that he is the anointed one. Well, to put all of this together would have taken an act of God. Amen? There are more than 100 distinct prophecies about just the death of Jesus alone. Over 100 on his death alone. And this does not include what is written about his birth or his life. All of them, written by many different authors over hundreds of years, were fulfilled by Christ. All of them, to the T. So I say again, it took an act of God to fulfill all of these prophecies. They were divinely <coughs> fulfilled. I love what John wrote in chapter 20, one of my favorite verses, uh, verses, verses 30 and 31. He said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, that's the purpose of the scriptures, that by reading these words, knowing these words, one is able to come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the eternal life with God Almighty. Amen? I'm going to read the rest of Isaiah, follow along as I do, and listen and see if you hear more prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his death. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. With his soul, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It is written so that we may know that our sins are forgiven and that we can have eternal life with our Savior. It is written. Now, back to Mark chapter 15. Or maybe 14, but go to 15. Listen, to, so the Sanhedrin... Now that we see that Christ has fulfilled all these prophecies, we see the Sanhedrin, that's the religious leaders, they arrest Jesus. They put on a mock trial. They said he was guilty of blasphemy. 
and that the punishment for that so-called crime was death. And they were ready to carry it out, but as we saw last week, they had one problem. They, they needed a Roman government to agree with them. They needed the, the Roman government to hang Jesus on the cross. They, they could not do it. So they bind Jesus, and they lead him through the city from Caiaphas' residence. That's the high priest. And, and they lead him through town, probably to Herod's palace, where uh, they handed him over to Pilate for, execution, uh, for the execution of the death sentence. Now, Pontius Pilate, we say his name every week, Pontius Pilate, was a harsh governor who despised the Jews. One could say that Pilate and the Jewish leaders were pretty much enemies. Now, Pilate, he didn't live in Jerusalem. He didn't stay there. He only came to town on special occasions such as the Passover festival to help maintain order. You see, he's the law, and what he said went. So Pilate had sole responsibility for the Romans' court's decision. He was the judge. And so as we read chapter 15, verse 1, we'll see, as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consolation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate asked, asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. So here we have a court. It's held in the public area. Pilate comes out to the people because the Jews did not want to go inside and be defiled. Now, this, this is where the plaintiff brings his charges and, and presents, they present their evidence against the, uh, the, the, the man. The, the magistrate, he interrogates the accused and listens to any further testimony from the defendant and other witnesses. Now, when all the evidence was in, the magistrate would, would usually consult his, with his legal advisors and then pronounce the sentence, which had to be carried out immediately. But what happened here with Jesus? Is that how it worked? Instead of confirming the Sanhedrin's death sentence immediately, Pilate insists on hearing the case. What's the charge? The Sanhedrin bring these uh, three accusations to Pilate about Christ, but as we see in Mark, he only wants to know about the one, the one where Jesus claimed to be king. So Pilate asked him, are you, are you emphatic, the king of the Jews? To Pilate now, th this claim was, you know, this is tantamount to treason to Caesar, a crime punishable by death. So he, he wanted an answer to that question, and Jesus gives him a I gave him a cryptic reply. He literally says, you, you, you say so. You know, it, it's best understood as a yes, but with a qualification attached. You know, as the Messiah, Jesus is king of the Jews, but his concept of kingship differed from that implied in Pilate's question. We saw that last week. What, what was the difference? Jesus' kingdom is not what of this world. Same answer Christ gave to the Sanhedrin. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? I am. He said, but you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Not the kingdom they were thinking. Basically, what we have here, too, when we see Jesus uh, going through this process, going through this trial and answering these questions and not answering these questions, we have Jesus fulfilling his own prophecy. When it comes to his crucifixion, Back in chapter 8, if you remember, 
Jesus declared that, um, Peter declared that Jesus is the Messiah. Who do you say I am? He said, you're the Messiah. He said, and, and right after that, after, Jesus, after uh, Peter makes that claim, Jesus began to teach his disciples on what this meant. And so this was a big turning point in the teaching of Jesus, in Jesus' teaching. Listen, he wanted his disciples to understand that he did not come to establish an earthly messianic kingdom at this time. He wanted them to get that. So he taught. What did he teach back then? That the Son of Man must suffer many things, like we just read in Isaiah 53. He taught that he would be rejected by the Jewish authorities, like we just saw in chapter 14 of Mark. He taught that he would be killed, and after three days he will rise again, and we will see that soon. So Jesus was preparing his disciples for this time. He told them these things must happen. All of this is necessary. This is the divine plan for Jesus' messianic mission. They, they need to understand this is how the Messiah will conquer the kingdom of this world and bring in the kingdom of God. And all this is coming to fruition as we see Jesus standing before Pilate with all the religious leaders there who have rejected him, who have beaten him, who have spit on him, who have declared a death sentence for him. Jesus standing before them alone. It's Jesus against the world. Everyone has left him. They have scattered, betrayed by Peter, his closest friend, forsaken by all the others. Jesus stands alone, no one to defend him, no one to comfort him, not one. N.T. Wright points out, Mark is telling us that what Jesus has to do now, what is set before him, he has to do all by himself. No one else, let me repeat, no one else can bring Israel's story of failure and redemptions to its climax but Jesus. If Jesus is the Messiah, there comes a moment when he has to act solo. He, he has to act alone. And that moment has come. He is alone. All have left him. Now before we judge all those who left him and failed, it goes right along with what Chris said today as we see in our psalm, we must do a self-examination <laughs> before we say, they should have known better. They should have known. They walked with Christ. We look at ourselves can't help to think about how many times I've left Jesus alone. I know his word. I know his teaching. I know what he says to do, but yet, how many times have I disobeyed and left Jesus? Too many times, I'm embarrassed to say. But you know, the good news is God is faithful. We must understand that as we just sung that hymn the faithful of God is true and has been proven many times throughout the scriptures there are literally dozens of scriptures that tell us of God's faithfulness and as we study the crucifixion we clearly see the faithfulness of God it's because of Jesus's faithfulness that we have forgiveness of sins amen 
We have seen that there are many Old Testament prophecies promising a coming Messiah or Savior. And here in our text today, we see God's faithful promise being fulfilled. No matter what sin we have committed, no, no, no matter how, quote, bad we are, God is faithful to forgive us if we accept Jesus and repent of our sins. We know that God sent his son, and through him we have everlasting life, John 3, 16. We know that Christ died for our atonement of sin, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. We know that God ordained Jesus, the author of eternal life, Hebrews 5, 5. We know that. We know that God is so faithful that anyone who seeks him can find him. Amen? In 1 John 1, 9, we're told, if we confess our sins, listen, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, with absoluteness, we can have the confidence that God will forgive us if we just turn to him and confess. If we cry out to God, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, he will forgive. Amen? He will do that. God is faithful. He forgave Peter. Don't forget that. Even though Peter denied Christ three times, even though Peter left him at the worst of times, Jesus restored him because God is faithful. Back to our text, chapter 15, verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. <clears throat> and he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate has a problem. He says with his own mouth that Jesus is innocent. But the problem is, Pilate lacked courage to stand up for what he believed in. He wanted to avoid a riot. So he was willing to content with the people, content the people. Pilate, Pilate did, he, he didn't ask the question, he didn't ask the question, is this right? Do I do what's right? No, instead he says, <clears throat> is this safe? It, you know, is this decision popular? Nothing new under the sun, is it? How many leaders over the years have not worried if it was right or not? Not worried if it was the right thing to do? No, they ask, is this safe? Is this popular? Because they want to keep their power. Same thing with Pilate. They want to be reelected nowadays. Nothing new under the sun. So he, here we have Pilate. He's looking for a way out. He doesn't want to make this decision. Because he wants to be popular. He wants to be safe. He wants to be, keep his position of power. Mark doesn't tell us here, but Luke does. Pilate, after, after they make the, you know, crucify him, crucify him, you know, uh, Pilate tries to get out of it again, and, and he sends him, uh, he finds out that uh, 
Christ is from Galilee, so he says, hey, man, let me send him over to Herod. That's his jurisdiction. Let's send him over to him. Listen to what Luke says. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, talking about Christ. And when he had learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some signs done by him. So, his quest, so he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. Why? Because this guy's looking for some signs. He want the truth. He didn't want the truth. The chief priest and the scribe stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arrayed him in splendor clothing and sent him back to Pilate. Well, that didn't work for Pilate. That didn't pan out. You know, what, what do we see here? We see that Jesus didn't give an answer to anyone there, not to Herod, nor to chief priests or the scribes. They keep screaming the same thing. So all of them joined in. They're mocking Christ. But one thing to notice, Herod did not find guilt. He didn't find any guilt. Another confirmation, there's no guilt in Christ. He is sinless. So he sends him back. So Pilate's plan didn't work. So he came up with another plan. Here's his way out. Each year, during the Jews' Passover, Jews Passover meal, Pilate, Pilate made a custom to release any prisoner they requested. He may have instituted this custom to be on good terms with the people, as well as to cover up his many wrongful acts towards them. But whatever reason he did it, you know, nonetheless, it's a small act of mercy from the Roman overseer. And once a year, he gave the people a say-so. So let's walk through that. Verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate, Hey, do as you usually do for them. You know, hey, you remember? You used to release a guy every year. Hey, let's do that again. The crowd reminded Pilate, you know, don't, don't forget, you know. We, we want that prisoner released. And so Pilate a answers them. He says, you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? You know? For he perceived, what did he say? that out of envy that the chief priests and the scribes delivered him up. You know, Pilate, he's taking a little dig right here. He is. You know, this, this is the second time that Pilate used that title for Jesus, King of the Jews. They did not like that. He was showing his contempt for the Jews. And he'll use it again, as we'll see. But listen, Pilate's no fool. He didn't get in his place, get in this position being a fool. He knew that the arrest of Jesus was incited by envy. He knew that. Envy is grief or anger caused by another's success. You see, the religious establishment hated that the people liked or followed Jesus and not them. We saw that throughout the script, throughout the letter of Mark. You know, this started early on. You know, opposition to Jesus in Galilee came largely from the scribes and the Pharisees. And once Jesus came to Jerusalem, it came from the Sanhedrin. So we had the, the whole religious establishment envied Christ. And it was so obvious that Pilate saw the envy in their hearts. They hated Jesus because he was popular with the people. So Pilate says, hey, you want me to release the king of the Jews? He's just digging at him. And again, his plan didn't work out because Pilate thought that the crowd would certainly sympathize with Jesus their popular leader, right? We're, we're talking about the crowd here. You know, we're not talking about the religious leaders. This is the crowd. To be sure, the crowd would say, hey, give us Jesus. 
But verse 11, but the chief priest stirred the crowd, stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Bar Barabbas instead. So look what happened. The power of the religious leaders took precedence with the Jewish crowd who would hardly cite with the Roman governor, you know. We all know that none of the Jewish people liked the Roman government. They hated being, they hated being under the government rule, Romans rule. So guess what? It didn't take much to sway the people to call for the release of Barabbas over Jesus. Jesus may have been popular, but think about this for a minute. What kind of Messiah were the people looking for? A political savior. A military savior. One that would overthrow the Roman government and set up their own government. What was Barabbas in jail for? His active role in the fight against Rome. This, this made him a hero. You see, Barabbas was a notorious, quote, freedom fighter. And there were many people who agreed with his method. So I'm sure that the religious leaders used that to sway the people. Even though Barabbas was a murderer, even though he was a robber, they chose him over Jesus. It's amazing how quick the people turned on Jesus. Just like the psalm we just read, how quick they forget the works. It wasn't long ago that Jesus healed all the sick. You know, but they're going, well, that's good, but you know what? We'll take that murderous robber guy over there. That's what we'll do. We'll take him instead. He's going to free us from Rome. It didn't take long for them to forget those little miracles, did it? But look at, look at the contrast here. Barabbas deserves to die. Christ did not. Barabbas brings war. Christ brings peace. Barabbas is a robber. Christ gave it all. Barabbas is a murderer, and Christ gives life. And the crowd says, give us Barabbas. The heart is so wicked. You know, something to point out here, which is obvious. You know, there's God's way, and then there's the world's way. And we see it right here with Barabbas. He, he, he's a zealot, you know. And he, he was willing to do anything to bring in a... A, a, a version of, quote, God's kingdom. You see, he, 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 does what he, he does what he thinks would bring in God's kingdom, and that is de by defeating the Roman government. He believes he could set Israel free from the bondage, and the only way he can see to do this is with violence. In his mind, he justified his violence because he was trying to bring in the kingdom of God his way. You know, he's trying to do it man's way, not God's way. And he would take out the pagans with, with as he would say, uh, holy violence. I'm doing this in the name of God. I'm setting Israel free. I'm doing this for the God of Israel. I'm doing this to establish God's kingdom in Jerusalem, he would say. I'm using holy violence. Problem was, these zealots did not understand what the kingdom of God is. They didn't understand the kingdom of God. Jesus did not bring in the kingdom with violence. He did it with love. So again, we see God is showing us that there are two kingdoms. The kingdom of God, which is God-centered and spiritual, 
and the kingdom of this world, which is man-centered. There is one way that seems right in man's eyes, and then there's the right way that is God's way. And this, this comes right back home to us. Each one of us have, has to choose. We have to choose which one we will serve. We will, you know, we'll, we'll have to answer the question that Pilate posed for the people. Verse 12, if Pilate asked him again, then, then what shall I do with the man you called the king of the Jews? What shall I do? Like I said last week, we have to ask ourselves this question. What will we do with the man who is the king of the Jews? What will we do with the God-man? Because what we do with the God-man, that's Jesus, determines our destiny. What we do with Christ determines what kingdom we are in. Are you in the kingdom of God, an everlasting kingdom? Or are you in the kingdom of this world? What we do with Jesus Christ determines where we spend eternity, and this is the most important decision anyone has to make in their life. You have to make a decision. You can't sit on the fence. Will you crucify Christ, or will you accept his gift of salvation? The people who were there that day with Pilate, when Pilate asked, what do you want me to do with the, with the king of the Jews? They had their mind made up. What did they say? They cried out again, crucify him, crucify him. What evil has he done? Doesn't matter. Crucify him. They were ready to riot. Their anger was growing. Their hatred for the Son of God was being revealed. Listen to what John wrote about this event. He said it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So sad. Can you see the envy and hatred? They were willing to go as far as saying that they have no king but Caesar. They were willing to deny the kingdom of God and make an alliance with the kingdom of the world. Christ is not our king, they said. Caesar is our king. Crucify him, they said. Crucify him. Make note here, it was not Pilate who came up with the sentence. He allowed it. He did, but, but Pilate asked, what shall I do? What, what do you want? And the Jews said, that, that's the crowd and the religious leaders, they shouted, crucify him. They decided what the punishment would be for Jesus so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate, Pilate gives in. Instead of doing what was right, he wanted to keep his position. He wanted to please the mob. He was scared of the people, so he gives in. Peer pressure. To be honest, we're in the same position that Pilate was back then. If you're in the kingdom of God, then you can clearly see how the, how the kingdom of this world attacks us on a daily basis. You know, if you say you believe in Jesus or that you believe in the word of God, if you tell the world that you believe every word in this book right down to genuine leather, then you will become an enemy to the world. They will threaten you. They will ridicule you. They will mock you, call you names. And as we can... Read And as we read about the stories in the voice of the martyrs, they will even take your life. 
We have to make a choice daily. Am I a believer and a follower of God? Or do I give in to the, listen to me young people here, do I give in to the peer pressure of the world? Pilate gave in to the peer pressure. He didn't want to do what was right. He knew what was right, but he wouldn't do it. So we have to ask ourselves, are we worried about what people will say to us? Young people, are you worried about that? Are you concerned about being made fun of? Are you afraid you'll lose your status with the cool people, whoever they are, just because you love Jesus? Does the question that Pilate asked, what evil has Christ done ring in your mind when you see how much the world hates Jesus? Why do you hate Jesus so bad? What evil has he done? Stand strong in Christ. Jesus came to this earth and showed nothing but compassion, mercy, and love to this world. Why would the world hate him? Why would they lead him off to be crucified? Verse 16. <coughs> and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking him when, with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put, on, put his, uh, his own clothes on him. And they led him out to be crucified. Pilate releases Bar Barabbas to the people. And he has Jesus flogged. Flogging was a cruel and merciless preparation for crucifixion. But take notice here. The scriptures did not tell us about the horrors of flogging. We've all heard them. We've heard how that, that is taken and what is done to a human. But the scriptures do not tell us about the horrors or the horrors of the crucifixion. What does he say? They crucified him. You know, this is one of the most cruel ways one could be put to death. And the scriptures did not go into detail about it. But it does tell us about the mockery. It tells us how the people treated the king of the Jews. Dressing him up as king and giving him false worship. Saluting him, kneeling down before him in homage to him. All to ridicule, all a mockery of worshiping the real king of kings. We have to make sure we're not dressing Jesus up as a king and giving him fake worship. We have to make sure we love our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. Because God has promised that he would send the Messiah thousands of years before he came. Jesus fulfilled specific prophecies so that we can know that we know that Jesus is the chosen one. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the savior that we all need. Jesus gave it all so that you and I can spend eternity in heaven. We need to make sure we give him the worship he deserves. Amen. Pastor.